This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The subject that we talked about on the program and uh, brought to your attention some months ago right now, and that, of course, is the uh, province of Ontario's basic income project. And as you may recall, they uh, announced at that time that they were going to use Hamilton as a test site. Is it making a difference? Well, Tom Cooper, the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, was with us when we first talked about this program. He joins us here in studio on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on this. How are you doing today? I am doing well, Bill. You look like you have a little bit of a cold. Oh, yeah. I, as I was just saying to you, I mean, I had a bit of a sniffle about a week ago, and probably the smart thing to do when you have something like that is uh, go and sit outside for four and a half hours in Ottawa on a Sunday for the Grey Cup. and. Get snowed on and rained on and everything else. But uh, we're, we're surviving. We're doing all right. I'll stay on this side of the studio. Good idea. Okay. Yeah. Hello over there. <laughs> uh, we'll try to do what we can about this and try to limit it, our, our exposure to people like this. When you first talked to us about this program, one of the concerns that you raised at that time, and we didn't even know all the details, was uh, you hoped at that time that the government was going to do enough to make people aware of what this program was all about. Uh, the fact that there's not much of an uptake on this so far indicates that maybe they didn't do as much as they could have. Uh, that That's probably a good observation, Bill. I think this is an experiment, and it's something the government has, has constantly said we're trying for the first time here in Ontario. Uh, basic income is uh, government transfer for people, um, and, and there's very few strings attached. All you have to do is uh, be on living on low income between the ages of 18 and 64, and you could potentially apply. You could be on social assistance currently, you could be working and, and just not earning enough at your jobs uh, to make a go of it. So the basic income premise is, is really that it's supposed to provide a little bit of uh, uh, dignity for people that the social assistance system doesn't provide, perhaps. Um, but I think there was a lot of confusion off the top. And people have been living, particularly those on social assistance, have been living in uh, an era where there have been significant uh, challenges for people on social assistance, really uh, difficult rules to follow, very low rates. A uh, single person on Ontario Works Today gets $721 a month to live on, and that's certainly not enough to meet the costs of rent and food and, and other essentials in your life. And, and so this has been a sea change for the provincial government, and a lot of people didn't know what to make of it. Uh, they probably didn't trust the government. That's uh, exactly the point. The people I've talked to about this uh, expressed that very thought. Uh, they didn't believe it. When the government said, no, 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 there's no strings. Yeah, there's always a string attached. It's that old idea that if it sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true. Uh, and they just thought, no, because the other times governments have tried to do something like this or said they were going to do something like this, there was always a, oh, by the way, we're cutting back or we're clawing back. And they didn't even want to get involved. They didn't want to go on the record because they were afraid of what the government was going to do to them. Yeah, exactly. And and so that's why I think we saw a very low uptake from the first round of mail-outs the government sent out. And they sent them randomly to all sorts of uh, postal codes around the community. It didn't matter whether you lived in a low-income household or not, you received this package. And that's why there was a very, I think, small uptake. Um, and, and so we talked to the provincial government, other, other organizations talked to the provincial government about maybe a different direction and really more interaction with people who could potentially benefit from a basic income. Well, and you know what? It Actually, what I think it did here is underscored one of the other concerns here for people that are living below the poverty line is their skepticism. Yeah. In other words, every time the government announces, and this is not the first time the government's done something like this, this government or any previous government says, we've got a program that's going to help you. They say, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, why should we even get involved? You know, you burn me once, you burn me twice, I'm not going back a third time. And and that's, that's something they're going to have to deal with. Yeah. That old axiom, the scariest words in the English language, hi, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. Yeah. The, uh, the, the fact remains, though, I think this is a really... Uh, unique uh, opportunity for people who fall into a certain income category to, to potentially participate in this three-year pilot project. They have to go into it um, really uh, totally aware that there are drawbacks as well. Uh, one of the issues we've pointed out for the last couple of months is the fact that uh, if you owe money to credit, uh, to creditors, to collection agencies, to former landlords, there is always the possibility the basic income could be garnished, and uh, and a percentage of that could be taken taken away from uh, from creditors. Um, so people need to be aware of that going into it. 
But if uh, if it suits your personal situation, uh, if you're living on a low income, particularly those who are on Ontario Works and, and getting that $721 a month, this could potentially double it for the next three years. So that that could have a tremendous outcome for uh, for your housing situation, enabling you to buy healthier food, stay healthy, and, and really participate more in the community. You've done public sessions on this here in the Hamilton area since it was announced that this was going to be one of the test sites. Uh, what's the uptake and what are the stuff things that you've heard back from people that have attended those meetings? Yeah, the, the, the people who have applied are, are excited. Um, and and those, I've talked to a number of people who've already been accepted into the program as well. And uh, for them, it, it's starting to be a bit of a life changer. There are individuals who I've known for a long time who applied and, uh, and, and were accepted into the program who, who are now for the first time being able to make real choices in their lives around what kind of uh, food they uh, decide to purchase. If you're on Ontario Works, there's absolutely no choice. You just get the, the bargain basement uh, products that are available to you and then supplement with food by going to the food bank for the rest of the month. Um, now people have a, a better opportunity to buy healthier food. Uh, so I think we're starting to see some of that. But I, I think really the, the most important aspect of it is, is that community participation piece. People are able to now get out into the community again, maybe interact with some of their friends, go out for a coffee once in a while and, and really be able to, to take part in, in what we all should be doing in, in terms of that civic interaction with one another. What about numbers? Let's talk about some of the numbers. At the time the government rolled this policy out, they said they were hoping to get 4,000 people involved in this pilot project. Uh, the numbers I saw earlier this week indicate about 800 have signed on like that. Are they going to get a really decent sample here to be able to make any de- decisions about this? Or, or do you still ha- hold out hope that they're actually going to get close to that 4,000 number at some point? Yeah, I think they will definitely get cl- get to the 4,000 number, and, and they'll do it fairly soon. I think there has, there's been a certain change in attitude. People are, are now beginning to understand the basic income pilot a lot more. I'm getting calls every single day about people wanting to apply and learn more about it. was confusing. There were so many things yeah. going out there. The minimum wage increase, the basic income, and then there was the living wage story. And you know, people are just, their heads are swimming saying, I don't know which one you're talking about here. Yeah, exactly. And it, and, and it can be confusing. And the uh, again, basic income is, is a concept that's new to this province. It's been tried in other jurisdictions around the world. It was tried here in Canada in Dauphin, Manitoba in the 1970s for a couple of years. And there was an experiment there. But a new government came into power and, and really boxed up all the results from that. And nobody looked at it Sitting for in the basement years. at City Hall. It was. Yeah. Once somebody 20 years later did come around and, and start analyzing the, the results, they found there were tremendous outcomes from from basic income. So I'm hoping we'll see the same thing here. There's other places around the world that are that are having basic income experiments as well. In Finland, in the Netherlands, uh, a, a non-governmental organization is running one in Kenya to see how, how that African country uh, benefits from a basic income to, to a number of people. One thing that's different about the Ontario one though, is uh, from what I can see, uh, the benefits, the the amount of money people are receiving are higher here than, than they are elsewhere. Uh, a mayor in a city in California, Stockton, California, just announced he was launching a basic income pilot as well. That's $500 a month for people in that community. Um, so it's, I, I think Ontario's pilot project, while not getting quite up to the poverty line, is getting people close enough there that they can make a real difference in their lives. What about the public perception on this? Because there was some pushback, and still is, mm-hmm. uh, from people saying this is just another handout. That's, this is not going to solve anything. Yeah, and, and I hear that as well. And, and, and again, this is an experiment. This is something that we need to try. But there's a lot of evidence out there that when you provide people with a foundation level of income, that they spend it in the right ways. Um, they don't sit at home playing video games, watching soap operas. What they do is is really use it to improve their lives. And I've heard from so many people who are already on this basic income pilot who are starting to go back to school, wanting to go back to school, improve their skills, so they can really parlay that basic income into a better life for themselves over the long run. Because they know 
you know, after three years, nobody knows what's going to happen. Is the government going to roll this out across the province? Maybe not. Um, but people want to use this opportunity to really try to improve their lives in the short term so that they can have those long-term opportunities. Well, and this is the problem we've had with programs that have come up in the past. Invariably, they'll say, we're, hey, we're going to do something to help these people out right now if you qualify. And that was always the, the, the thing that threw a lot of people off. But invariably, if it meant added income, there was a clawback. In other words, if you were making 5000 bucks a year, for instance, and they were going to give you $2,000 in subsidy, you get that clawback against your $5,000. It was ridiculous what they were doing. There was no way people were ever going to get out of that hole. Yeah. So this is giving them a ladder, I guess, to get out of that hole. Yeah, it, it is. One of the drawbacks to basic income, though, is, is also a lack of supports. Um, so for social assistance for Ontario Works for the Ontario Disability Support Program, there are case support workers who are theoretically there to, to assist people uh, getting over some challenges in their lives. Um, the, the problem with basic income is it's really just that cash transfer and, and no other real support. So there are certain people, I think, who, who would certainly benefit from having social workers uh, active in their lives. And, and we need to keep that in mind as well. And, and for those people, maybe basic income isn't the right approach. Um, but for many people, I, I think this will be an interesting uh, pilot to see really how, how people react and, and are able to uh, utilize their money to the best of their advantage and community's advantage as well. All right, let's talk about the government's role in this right now because, I mean, while they're patting themselves on the back, and, and they deserve some credit for showing some initiative here, I, I don't want to be dismissive of that, but you just touched on a couple of other things that I think are important in this discussion as well. Those people that are already on social assistance, and, and by the way, I even hate to use that that umbrella term because that tells everybody says that that's going back to the common sense revolution of everybody's a welfare cheat but there are programs uh, ODS and others that are in, they send income support programs uh, those are underfunded as well mm-hmm. as the government saying well we're giving you this now so we're not concerned about the, the shortcomings in those other ones because that that still has to be part of the discussion oh absolutely and I think we have a solemn responsibility here in Hamilton because we are involved in the basic income pilot to remind the government that they can't use as as an excuse to not move on social assistance reform. There was just a major social assistance reform package that came out. I think you had Gary Block and Laura Katari on last uh, week talking about it. It's absolutely critical that the government realizes that those individuals on Ontario Works, particularly uh, single people and persons on disability on ODSP are living in the deepest poverty in society. There's 950,000 of them in Ontario who rely on those social assistance programs. Basic income only is affecting 4,000 people for for the next three years. So we certainly can't forget about those almost a million others who are are going to be relegated to woefully inadequate social assistance rates. That's why we're calling on the government uh, to implement those recommendations from the Income Security Reform Working Group implement a 10% increase in, in Ontario works rates in this budget coming up and and really start to move on those other recommendations around rebuilding the social assistance system that has quite frankly been broken for the last 20 years. Let's talk about uh, government commitment to this. And and this is the Wynn government, of course, that is instituting this program. There's an election coming up next year. Is there a concern that if there is a change of government, we don't know what's going to happen, that said that this program is going to get caught in the in the gears, the shifting gears of government, or is, or is there a commitment to at least continue through the pilot era? I'm I'm concerned uh, because we've seen in the past governments come in to power and then slash and cut programs. I'm hopeful that um, whichever uh, party uh, finds power after uh, after June seventh of next year that they will continue. Uh, with the commitment to 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 complete this pilot and complete the evaluation, it would be a tremendous waste of money if we get that this far into the program and then suddenly throw it in the trash can. Um, this this is a unique opportunity to test a social policy experiment. And w- one of the other cool things um, is that Hamilton is now at the epicenter of this. Uh, discussion really internationally. We're going to be hosting the North American Basic Income Congress in May, right before the election, and we're going to be bringing in academics and and social policy advocates and government representatives from right across the continent to to really talk about basic income and and, uh, some of the results we've seen in other places and, and where we think this is going in the future.
So I think the provincial government and all political parties should get behind this idea. Well, you got to figure if the liberals get reelected, they'll probably continue it. Uh, we're endeavoring to get Patrick Brown on the program next week, so certainly that's something I'll bring up when, uh, if I can get Patrick back in studio to talk about some issues. And the, uh, I think pretty much the NDP are on side with the premise of this thing anyway, so that's that's something I think needs to be discussed here. Uh, anyway, this, for people that, that did not get involved in this who think maybe I can reconsider, maybe it's something I do want to get into, how can they get involved? How can they roll into it? Yeah, there there's a new process in place now. So at first the government was sending out what were really invitations to apply. Uh, now they're encouraging people to, to get on the government uh, of Ontario's basic income website or, or call a 1-800 number and, and really sign up for an in-person application session. So I can give out that phone number. It's 1-844-217-4516. And people can call up and request a appointment to apply for basic income. Now it's randomized. And uh, even people who are chosen to participate in the pilot, half of them are going to be uh, receiving a basic income. The other half are going to be what's called a control group. So not receive the money, but still be asked to participate and and fill out surveys. And and they'll be given a little bit of compensation for that. Um, But again, it's a good opportunity, depending on your own financial circumstance. If, if you're on Ontario Works, if you're working, if you don't receive a very high income right now, uh, there might be some good opportunities to participate in this basic income pilot and, and really see how your life changes. Tom Cooper, uh, the chair, of course, and director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Uh, great to see you, as always. Thanks so much for this. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. So I want to talk about the downtown core, just around Gore Park. Uh, many of you are going to be down there, of course, on Friday night of this week for the tree lighting ceremony for the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope. That's always going to be a lot of fun. But I want you to look at some of the buildings. Get down there before it gets dark, because I want you to look at the facades of some of the buildings. Now, there's a lot going on downtown at Gore, and, uh, and a lot with new buildings and new construction. But at the same time, that has to be weighed against uh, the preservation of some of those historical buildings. And this has been an ongoing argument, debate, uh, endeavor, I guess, by an awful lot of folks on this, because there are people that want to invest in that area. How they want to do it and what they're going to construct and what it's going to look like have always been contentious issues. To talk about this, uh, we welcome back to the program Jason Fire, the counselor for Ward 2 in the downtown area, as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Jay, how are you doing this morning? Better than you, Bill. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm hanging in. You're get, sounding better every day. Getting a little bit better, yeah. <laughs> nothing, nothing like it when you get the sniffles. Hey, let's go to Ottawa and sit out in the snow and the cold for four <laughs> hours. That worked for me. It was a great game, though. Yeah, one of the best. Uh, we we ought to get a great cup here, by the way. Look into that for me, would you? Okay, next topic. All right, we'll get to that soon <laughs> yeah. enough. Yeah, exactly. uh, listen, if you had a buck for every time that you and I have sat down here and talked about the buildings at the Gore, you'd be a wealthy man right now. Well, at least I'd have $25. At least. At yeah, least. You know, over, <laughs> I was thinking about it. You were the first to carry this, and it was over uh, half a decade ago that we first started talking about these five addresses in the core. Wow. And uh, and here we are doing it once again because we've, we've resolved it. Oh, no, it's not resolved. Oh, and, and get back and forth on this. Uh, but you've got some players here. And what was interesting about the, the initial discussions that you and I had about this, Jay, was let's, let's you know, call it as it was. There wasn't a whole lot of interest or activity about what was going on at the Gore when this whole thing started. And, and Wilson Blanchard stepped up and said, okay, we're going to do something about this. And they came up with a proposal. And, and, and it met with some, some pushback. And, and others thought, okay, maybe it's the best situation, so we're going to have to get there. But I think the attitude towards Gore Park has also evolved over that period of time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, from, you know, just the multi-millions of dollars in the in those five years that we've invested in the Gore Master Plan and two of the larger uh, of the three pieces of the Gore are now complete. And as you know, you've spent some quality time there. Remembrance Day, and you will again Friday night, and we'll look forward to that along with your sister stations. But uh, now we're, uh, we, we most definitely, through that investment in the promenade, and uh, through a, a multitude of initiatives from everybody from culture to local radio stations like yours and, uh, of course, the downtown BIA, yeah, interest is uh, as high as I've seen it in my seven and a little bit years as the elected official in Ward 2. And now, of course, when that happens, there's a great deal of focus on those surrounding buildings, heritage and, and that sort of thing. And so, uh, absolutely, this issue has been in the spotlight as a, as a standalone issue but, uh, you know, when you encompass all that has been going on in the surrounding area, in the immediate area, it's definitely uh, 
uh, been a, a prime topic of discussion and engagement over the course of the last five years, Bill. Well, and listen, uh, to their credit, I want to talk about Blanch- Wilson Blanchard, because Dave Blanchard's been on the program here before, and, and, mm-hmm. and that's a, a company that has stepped up and believed in Hamilton and believed in heritage preservation, and they've Absolutely. they've worked with the city and, and worked with others in the past. But but this one was, was a bit of a different situation because of, of the deteriorated condition, I guess, of, of the buildings that are in question right now. But if you can look at this as, as a silver lining for all the debate and all the controversy that went on about this, Jay, it brought a lot of people into the conversation. And instead of being people just say, well, I'm on this side, I'm on this side, and, and yelling back and forth at each other, you had a lot of them simply step forward and say, well, what can I do to help? And, and that's what's happened here. You've got a lot more input here than we did initially. Oh, exactly. And, and they, they have never failed to you know, listen, not, notwithstanding some of the arguments from the other side, the heritage activists who do great work throughout the city, not just in the Gore, um, and, and some of the dissenting arguments that we may have heard play out publicly over the course of the first two and a half, three years. Uh, the reality is they've always listened and to your uh, point that established uh, the question. Uh, absolutely. And I've never failed to say, and you can attest to this and this Beck and everyone else, um, Wilson Blanchard as property managers uh, do outstanding work. And in preservation alone, I mean, three corners of the four corners at uh, Maine and James are directly uh, uh, the result is heritage preservation as the direct result of, of their efforts. So, and, and, you know, even Mr. Blanchard himself lives in a heritage designated home. So I never failed to point that out. And, you know, those arguments early on were absolutely, Bill, they were uh, uh, about, you know, the, the state of deterioration, mostly inside the building. And then the manipulated facades on those two buildings too, not a lot of heritage left. So they did, they did listen. And then, the, two things happened, I think. The, the market has changed. I mean, people like Steve Kolkowski and Marine and Dave Sobe have shown that you can restore a building and collect rents that uh, maybe were unprecedented, in fact, were unprecedented uh, some five years ago, because there's a different market out there that wants to locate in these uniquely uh, um uh, designed and restored uh, buildings, and certainly that has been the case in recent years with uh, King William Street and the Templar Flats and other areas that have been restored in the downtown core. They see the value in that, quite obviously. They get a great architect, and they um, listen, as you say, to different people with their opinions and, and have found, uh, they have found, with their consortium, Houston Business Corporation, uh, that, that this can work. And maybe five years ago, they didn't believe it. But certainly in my discussions with them in the last few months, uh, they believe it now. But you know what? There's an attitude with that. And I, I've talked to Steve Kulikowski and, and the Solveys about that with the work they've done at Corb. And, and, and I said, look, at Steve, one of the things I always hear from people that are trying to do what you guys are doing and, and what Dave Blanchard is doing as well is they say, well, okay, let's get to work on this. And they start tearing the wall apart. They say, whoa, I didn't know I was going to find that. Mm-hmm. That's going to jack the price up. And I said, how do you handle that? And, and Steve said simply, he says, we built it into our plan, that it's going to happen. If it doesn't, that's a bonus. So in other words, this, they don't get surprised by anything. It's an old yeah. building, expect the worst, and, and, and hope that it's going to get better. So there's, there's nothing like that. And I think that's the attitude that, that others are starting to take right now, too, to say, look, at, let's, let's not try to do this on uh, as cheap a plan as possible. Let's understand that this is going to take an investment, but we're going to get the money back. As Corbin have proven, you can do that. Uh, absolutely, and I and I and I think you know from an economic standpoint and and proximity to the very center of our city uh, and, and and due diligence with people like engineers and, and heritage architects that uh, Houston Business Corp has brought uh, into the fold in the last couple of months. Uh, David Premi, uh, their their prime architect, yeah, they 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 absolutely see the value. You know, it's funny, and we're talking about uh, uh, Dave and and Steve and and uh, Maureen. I'm at Momentum Fitness right now, and and you know maybe five ten years ago, and I'm in one of their buildings where they've restored uh, an older building, and they've left exposed brick that, if left exposed, like they've torn up uh, probably five layers of drywall and and gotten to the the base. And five ten years ago, uh, you know your average developer or investor might have done that and went, oh my god, no one's going to like that. Well, now it seems to be all the rage. It's, it's it's not uniform. There's concrete everywhere. There's different sized bricks, uh, uh, but they fill the holes and they shine up a little bit of the wood here and there. And suddenly, you know, that's that's the uh, 
that's the interior everybody seems to be clamoring for exposed brick right now so little things like that i'm just trying to make the point that you know the the ideas and perceptions change and you know years ago a good friend of mine who's in the in media told me there's nothing wrong with a little bit of grit it's actually an attraction having having a bit of a gritty as part of a design uh imperfections are actually uh strong selling points for some uh in in this day and age and that's what people are looking for something different and certainly dave maureen are very good at that and i know houston business corp will be as well they're going to clean up as best they can and ultimately come up with a product that i think people are going to clamor for your front your front property is the premier park where all the action happens which is now pedestrianized which has had a multi-million dollar investment uh from the city of hamilton and the taxpayers and and you can't ask for a better front lawn really where where we're lighting the tree of hope once a year literally outside your window there's value in that bill well and let's talk about those specific properties and and we've given lots of kudos here to core urban but i want to talk about blanchard and the work that they're doing and and as you say when we started this discussion way back when uh, there weren't a whole lot of people banging on the door saying, I want to do something in the in the core down at Gore no. Park. But you look at what's happened since then, and we talked about Core Urban and the work that they've done on this. Uh, you've got the Leuna project, which is underway now, uh, mm-hmm. just a, a block or so away. And you, by the way, if you get one of the units uh, the Blanchard's building right now, you can go look at that building when it gets done, too. So mm-hmm. now this company, this is the old adage that we've talked about for years now, that success brings more success. Absolutely, and that's exactly the case here. And you're, you're, you're right. In spitting distance, there's a tremendous amount of whether completed examples like Templar or Leona. I'm glad you mentioned Leona High Rise, where they're brick by brick. They numbered the facade of that Thompson building, and now they're putting it back. And you can really get a sense of just how uh, intrinsic the, pro- the project is. But what great value they've added to a brand new building, uh, Skyrise, uh, rise for, for students ultimately. Um, but, but they see the value and it's obviously paying off big time. So, so I, I, I know that, that Houston, uh, Business Corp, uh, Blanchard, Stapleton, they, they def- most definitely, uh, have kept an ear toward, uh, the idea. And now I think they're, at, with all senses, are moving forward. And, and, and I can tell you, while in the past you and I talked about the roller coaster ride that was, still there was a few, uh, motions, some contentious debate, what you and I called a compromise four years ago, uh, went away. It almost was appealed legally and then it came back again. So two comp- compromised motions in two different terms of counsel by counsel to make uh, what currently stands happen. And now uh, a modification of the latest council resolution, but this time the modification is one that almost everyone I've talked to so far, in fact, everyone, well, almost everyone, one person on Twitter didn't like the idea and still called it facadism, notwithstanding it's going 50 uh, feet back uh, from the facade now, which is a greater extent than what was originally contemplated. But almost everyone is seeing this as a real step forward and, and, uh, and an improvement to the uh, compromise that we ratified some months ago. Well, there's an element to this that I think people have to, to grasp here. Uh, if you haven't seen what they're suggesting that's going to happen here actually in place, it's, it's maybe difficult to understand. When you talk about, well, the facade's going to remain, but they're going to do something else behind that, that sounds almost like a movie backdrop that you see and to say, well, that's going to look awful. But, but I've been to Halifax. Uh, my wife, Rebecca, was just there for a conference a, a month or so ago, and she was amazed at, at what they've done there in the downtown core. And I know you're familiar with it as well, mm-hmm. where they have maintained existing facades and build in behind this. And you can't tell until you actually get inside the building, that there's a difference. I mean, they, it can be done very well. And you mentioned Dave Premi. Dave's uh, one of the most respected architects in this community. Uh, I, I, I feel confident right now because of what's being proposed here that this is going to work, and it's not going to look as, as, as incongruous as some people might think. Oh, it will, Bill. And you know the best part? Um, there, there is an anxiousness like I've not seen uh, to, you know, get the shovels in the ground as it were come spring 2018. I mean, ultimately, that's what we all want is to see some movement, see some action. And, and certainly, uh, I have uh, every faith in staff that we can uh, put that together and, and get whatever we need to get on the table, whether it be planning committee, GIC or council, ultimately. And I know that they are giddy to get going because they see a market and they want to uh, get into that market and, uh, and and do the kinds of things some of the aforementioned investors and developers uh, uh, are doing already in the course. So hopefully, um, w- with everything else that our planning staff have on their plate right now, I mean, committee of adjustment just today and next Thursday alone, I think there's about 12 
uh, Ward 2 uh, issues uh, coming before committee. And you don't usually see that kind of volume from just one ward. So there's a lot of staff working overtime in our planning department. But I do believe a lot of folks see this as a priority people like you and others giving it a great deal of attention because it is the center of our city we do finally have uh, 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 something that everyone seems to be on board with so uh, let's get it moving and, and it's nice to see both sides uh, uh, very anxious to see this shovel in the ground concept happening in early spring 2018 all right but listen this is not the first time that you and i have had this discussion and say well, no. we've, well that's settled now let's move on uh, it still has to remove, gain rather site plan approval for this, and that's a council decision. Are, are there going to be any political hip, hiccups here? No, I, I can't. I mean, they've been, but my colleagues and I, you know, I never like to predict on the program where my colleagues may go or the mayor may go, but I think this one's a no-brainer. Uh, they've been very, very supportive to date, notwithstanding some of the contentiousness around some of the debates in the past. So I, I sense that uh, we're going to be fine with the site plan. Of course, they'd be eligible now as well. I mean, the last resolution pretty much took away the heritage designation of two of the addresses. They're going to want that back, and for a couple of reasons. Obviously, uh, the preservation and the heritage aspect to be part of that uh, growing amenities in uh, in heritage-designated properties in the downtown and in buildings of interest on the registry, almost a 1,000. But they also want to uh, uh, obviously apply, and that needs council ratification, too, for our very generous heritage grants and loans. I mean, they're, they're, they're it makes good business sense to apply for the same sort of uh, loans and grants uh, in our heritage programs, which are some, some of the most robust in Ontario, if not Canada, for all of the addresses now, just as they're doing for the other two. So that'll take some uh, some movement through council as well. And they're certainly eligible if they choose, as they have chosen, as they uh, mentioned in their press release just a few days ago, to pr- preserve all of the facades. Well, here's hoping that you can check the box on this one and move on to mm-hmm. other things. Uh, maybe turn your attention towards the uh, the church project there at Jackson and James and do something about that one. That's another well, one that, that was highly anticipated that kind of fell through. But uh, I've heard there's a buyer, and I heard that one of, they want to maintain what's there of the church, so those are two good uh, things that uh, are an exclusive for the Bill Kelly Show this morning. Good. Well, we'll uh, get into that one in a little more detail, I guess, when you get some of the details on this. But here's sure. hoping that this thing moves forward, because there's just so much activity going on down there. And you're right, we noticed that at Remembrance Day, of course, and we'll be down there on Friday, and I know you will too for the tree lighting ceremony and and it's amazing to see the the renaissance that's gone on and not just the, with the gore itself uh, but with the buildings around there once again and uh, i know there are a lot of people that that never thought that was going to happen again and uh, you know it's worth a trip down there just to have a look around well especially friday night for the for the tree lighting ceremony uh, from uh not an automobile or bus perspective for gore park but from a sheer amount and volume of people it's going to be more congested than bill kelly on a tuesday morning and i've been wanting to say that for the last 22 minutes so i'm glad i got it in there you go all right uh appreciate that who does your writing for you (laughs) jason far jason far the counselor for downtown appreciate the time jay bye bill you're listening to the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on am 900 chml we have, uh, as we discussed a number of uh, times, uh, talked about post-traumatic stress disorder and the impact that it has, certainly on military, and, and that's uh, come to light, of course, in recent years because of Canadians' involvement in, uh, in uh, far reaches of the world, but also with first responders. And we're just catching up, I think, to what needed to have been done a long, long time ago. Uh, and we've talked with the, uh, the folks, of course, the, the, the paramedics that are involved in this, and police, and fire, and... Uh, we are told now that governments are starting to clue into this, and the governments are offering programs right now, and, and they make big announcements about, oh, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to treat these people, we're going to talk with uh, police and first responders, and we're going to make programs available and, and institutions available, like Homewood, that, that are going to help people that are dealing with PTSD. Well, what they say and what they offer and what's on paper is not necessarily what is delivered. And our next guest, I think, can offer testimony to that. Bruce Kruger is a retired detective inspector at the Ontario Provincial Police who has been waging that war, not just with PTSD, but against government institutions and government red tape. And it's a, it's a compelling story, and it's a story that needs to be told. And to that end, we are pleased to welcome Bruce Kruger to the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Bruce, good morning, and thank you so much for the time today. It's my pleasure, Bill. Uh, listen, this all started with an email that you sent me and to, to, after hearing about the segments that we did on the program here, and I was so intrigued by this that my producer, Liz Russell, and I said, 
we got to do something about this. Uh, uh, and then you, you sent me this plethora of information about what has gone on here right now. This is this is not a new battle for you. Tell us your story and, and give us some background as, as to how you got to where you are right now. Well, very quickly, uh, as a young police officer in 1977, I was forced to uh, shoot a man. He uh, died as a result. He uh, was about to shoot a young recruit with a sawed-off shotgun. Since then, I went through uh, many other traumatic experiences, including finding a friend of mine shot to death, another police officer on duty. Um, the number of incidents just went on for years, and I knew that I had mental problems resulting from this, but there was no place to turn. So in 1984, I tried the brand-new OPP peer support program, and uh, I was one of the first to respond to it, and unfortunately, it turned out it was not the confidential program it was made out to be. So I shut my mouth until 2000, anticipating, well, once I got through retirement, I could finally get on with my life and, and escape this uh, horrendous fear uh, of PTSD. And by the way, I had no idea what PTSD was even uh, about until near my end of my career. So I was finally diagnosed in 2002 with it, and by 2009, I thought I, you know, was going to overcome this with professional help, and it would come and go, but by 2009, I had a horrific setback, and uh, as a result of that, I was hospitalized in uh, 2010 for two months. While I was in hospital, uh, there was uh, I was in with soldiers and police officers, and there was not one person that visited any of the police officers, uh, only soldiers. And at the time, they were trying uh, to get the uh, name of Eddie Adamson, a police officer from Toronto that killed himself, onto the Wall of Honor. And there was a picture published in the Toronto Sun about this. I was very upset because here they are trying to get his name on the wall of honor, and I thought, what in hell are they doing to keep mine off it? So I ended up writing the Ontario Ombudsman, asking if he would do an investigation into how police were treated uh, with mental injuries. Uh, fortunately, uh, after an awful lot of struggles, I was uh, through the great help of the OPP Veterans Association and the Toronto Sun. We were able to show the Ombudsman that this was not just a Bruce Kruger problem, but rather it was a systemic problem throughout policing. And so Mr. Andre Moran, the Ombudsman of the day, undertook to investigate the um, Ontario Provincial Police and the Ministry of Community Safety and Correctional Services it was the largest uh, undertaking he ever did, resulting in uh, the largest number of recommendations he ever made up until that time. There was 28 scathing uh, recommendations against the OPP and an additional six against the Ministry of Labor, or sorry, against the Ministry of uh, Community Safety. So as a result of that, uh, I was very proud by the way, there had been a, a number of police come forward to back me up. There were 77 OPP officers and 146 municipal. As a result of that investigation and recommendations, tremendous change has taken place within the policing program and within first responders. But however, having said all that, now uh, it's wonderful to have these uh, uh, program assistance through the associations of policing, fire, and ambulance, and their respective uh, organizations. But where the horrendous downfall is with the Ontario government and with the WSIB in particular, and it's an absolute outrage and disgrace. I want to get into I want to get into that in a couple of seconds, but a couple of questions about about your history, and that's why I wanted to set that as a foundation for the discussion here, Bruce. Uh, I was intrigued by that the one element you just repeated it here today that when you first tried to get some support help from this, uh, you were surprised that it it was not the confidential program that you thought. Are you suggesting 
that others found out that you were seeking treatment? Uh, is, is that what, what, what seemed to turn you off the program at the time? No, actually, I was warned by the um, uh, peer support officer, and I, I give him full marks. Uh, when I first met with him, he said, look, Bruce, before you say anything, I've got to caution you. This is not a confidential program as it's made out to be. I've been ordered to uh, report anybody that I interview back to the uh, commanders. And so uh, he said, if you ever want to be promoted, don't come back and see me. And I shut my mouth. I never said a word to anybody other than my immediate family for all those years. So, and now I understand that people are going to be outraged when they hear that, but time and place back in those days... Uh, that was probably good advice. And as much as it was terrible for your for your mental health at the time, as a career option, he just said, look, if you come and talk to me about this, you're never going to get above the rank you're at right now. That's essentially what you were being told. That's exactly what it was. And I was very grateful for that information that he didn't hold back. Um, because, yes, I did want to uh, proudly go ahead with my career and promotions and seek uh, new adventures as I went along my pathway. But that 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 is a, a talk about a setback. Uh, that okay, there's this program that's going to help you, but if you access it right now, uh, that's a mark against you as far as your career is concerned. That's 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 frightening, really. That's correct. It it was. It was very scary, and that's why I took the action that I did of silence. And you, here's the thing about strength in numbers, and you've talked about the advocacy that you've undertaken, and, and the Toronto Sun played a role on this, and, and as did others. And uh, we've had, the, uh, of course, the former ombudsman, Mr. Myron, on the program a number of times, and we, we know about his passion for issues like this. But w- was there any solace at all in strength in numbers to know that you're not the only guy that was going through this, or the only person that was going through this? No, it, it was... Uh excellent bill in in the satisfaction that it was not just me alone that uh, it wasn't just that uh, you know uh, I was reacting totally abnormally uh, it turned out that uh, an awful lot of my uh, conduct and actions were normal for the circumstances that I had endured yeah, at the same time, while they, the, the numbers are, are great, and it's great to have that kind of support and know that, that there are fellow officers that are going through the same thing, every battle's an individual battle, isn't it, Bruce? Absolutely it is. Every, every uh, officer, first responder that suffers from PTSD, we all react in, in different manners, but overall there's some basic foundations that, yes, we uh, react the same way, too. And and those stories are all going to be unique, and we, we don't want to spend too much time in this, although that's a key part of, of uh, the diagnosis and certainly of treatment of situations like this. So because of the work and the advocacy that you and others have done, uh, there have been some sweeping changes recommended. We get that, and the governments have announced some of this stuff. But it seems to me now like one of the biggest barriers, and you just touched on it a second ago, is is the Workplace Safety and Insurance Board. Uh, which has been in place for quite some time. It's it's the, the 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 guardian, I guess, of this system. They're the ones that say, "Yeah, we can pay for this. This is going to be available to you, et cetera, et cetera." And on paper, Bruce, it sounds like a great organization, and I'm sure there's some great people there. But at the same time, it seemed to be one of the biggest challenges for you. Uh, WSIB has been an absolute disgrace, and unfortunately, and and by the way, I'm not taking political positions of any parties or that, but however. Uh, WSIB has been supported in their disgraceful conduct by government uh, for many, many years. And that's the uh, horrendous uh, sadness of this thing, that it's tolerated, and yet they get to brag uh, about the uh, money that they've been saving. By the way, Bill, I do want to emphasize this is strictly about government underfunding of an agency. It is uh, not just simply the... uh, Uh, poor efforts of WSIB. They've been placed in a position where they must save money. And uh, sadly, it's on the back of injured workers. And who's most easily to uh, uh, stop from getting funding but those that are suffering from mental illnesses or mental injuries who don't have the ability to withstand the assault, basically, of WSIB? And as an example, by the way, uh, Elizabeth Whitmer, the chairman uh, or chair of the board for WSIB, in her most recent report uh, presented this year, 
She actually brags about how she has saved $10.2 billion in the last four years um, and trying to get back on proper um, financial standing within the government. And on the other hand, at the same time, the CEO of uh, WSIB, he has now uh, bragged, uh, his name is Mr. Thomas Tian, and he has now bragged how uh, they have increased their uh, savings in a uh, special fund by $3.1 billion, and they now have $29.4 billion uh, tucked away, and yet we can't get help. Well, there's that's the other side of the coin, though, Bruce. And this is what the, the frustration I'm sure you feel, and certainly I do, as I was going through some of the numbers here that you've provided for us. Uh, and for for Ms. Whitmer to suggest that well, we saved 10.2 billion dollars, uh, I look at that and say that's 10.2 billion dollars that could have gone to treatment to people that are dealing with PTSD, and it didn't. Uh, and and now you have to wonder, well, you know, what are the priorities here? Is it is it your bottom line, or is it providing the proper care? And and obviously, there's a disconnect there. No, there's a total disconnect, Bill. Uh, the most important feature that I can see of WSIB at the moment by both their board and their CEO is strictly to save uh, money and get this organization back on financial uh, good standing by means of saving the money from the injured workers as opposed to having the government properly funded. Well, and you've, you've cited some examples, and, and I mentioned Homewood off the top, because we know, I think, about the facility there and some of the great work that they try to do here. Uh, and, and there was a, I, I, one segment here, and I'm just doing this off the top of my head because I was, I was leafing through some of the pages uh, a few minutes ago, uh, trying to catch up on some of the notes here. But the, the, it costs money. Uh, these programs cost money. All the stuff that we're talking about here, the treatment, uh, the, uh, the facilities themselves, of course, cost money. Uh, and for the WSIB to turn around and say, well, we're not going to fund that anymore. Those are the sorts of stories that really turn your head and make you think that where is the government's commitment to really do something about this? They talk the talk, but walking the walk means funding the programs essentially to the degree that they need to be funded. And you saw so many doors slammed in your face and in fellow officers' faces like this. It's It's got to be just a, a totally frustrating circumstance, Bruce. Yes, it is. I'm uh, currently trying to seek additional uh, uh, further specialized help. Over all these years, my condition's worsening instead of getting better. And by the way, I, I give full, full kudos to uh, Homewood. Uh, it's an excellent program that they have there, so nothing uh, against them whatsoever. But however, just to show you how trivialized uh, WSIB has been with this, with the absolute hell that I have gone through in all these years, they have what's called a non-economic loss award. And uh, this basically gives the uh, status of what your injury is worth for a lifetime. And uh, my NIL award was $2,500 from the 10 years prior to when I was awarded uh, benefits until the day that I die. And that $2,500 represents everything that it's cost me in time off work, uh, time in hospitals, uh, travel time. Uh, and it really works out to one oil change for my truck a year for the absolute hell that I go through. And one officer from, uh, I believe it was Durham Regional that I was speaking to at a conference where I spoke, and uh, he said, uh, with all due respect, Inspector, uh, he said, you know, I injured my baby finger and it didn't set quite correct. And they gave me the same amount. And that's what my mental injury has been worth to WSIP. Now, I want our listeners to understand, because this is very similar to the discussion we have had about uh, about how the federal government was, I think, mistreating uh, you know our veterans, of course, and uh, those that are dealing with PTSD in that circumstance. And, and the Harper government's uh, policy at that time was to simply give a one-time check to these people, as opposed to simply saying, we're going to treat you and try to help you to, to get on with your lives. And that was wrong. It was dead wrong in so many different ways. And that's what the federal government's doing with soldiers and, and retired soldiers. The same thing is happening with first responders, with police. This, the government is now saying, well, here's a check. 
In other words, they're they're quantifying your your problems in this case, Bruce, and saying we, we don't don't go for treatment and then then send us the bills for it and we'll try to reimburse you. Don't do that anymore because that's costing us too much money. We're just going to give you a check and and send you on your way and, and good luck with the rest of your life. That's not commitment. No, I, I want to clarify something, Bill. That's uh, not quite correct. Uh, the Nell Award is not just a, a one-time payoff and then leave the WSIB. That's just simply uh, the cost that uh, indicates the seriousness of what you've gone through and some basically smaller costs in your life. Um, but, however, uh, they do continue to pay the very minimum of um, uh, costs for your treatment. And in regards to that NIL award, uh, I have been sent to New York City last uh, this past spring to see a specialist uh, from New York University and New York City Police. He's in charge of mental injuries of the New York City Police. And uh, WSIB has advised me that, in fact, that since I reached my level of recovery, as announced by this NIL award, that um, I no longer am able to receive any further um, help with the specialized programs. I said to them, when uh, did I receive this maximum recovery designation? And they said, in May of 2012. I said, in May of 2012 is the very first that you finally gave me benefits after fighting you for eight, over 800 days to obtain them. And they said, yes, and that's when we decided that you wouldn't be getting any better, so therefore we're only going to give maintenance assistance to you of seeing a psychiatrist or medical uh, doctors and uh, prescription drugs, and that's it. That's pretty sad, and uh, by the way, this is... Uh, known by first responder associations and whatnot, and sadly, uh, nobody is uh, taking this on to try to correct the matter. Well, we want to bring some awareness to this, Bruce, and that's why I'm glad you had some time to talk to us about this today. Uh, I'm hopeful that this is going to be the first of a number of discussions that you and I are going to have about this uh, to keep us up to speed on what's happening, because it's not just about Bruce Kruger, and you've never made it just about Bruce Kruger. It's been about the thousands of others that are in similar situations to yours as well. Uh, We have to break it off right now. Time is our enemy right at this moment, but I I do want to pick up on this and and continue this, because there are some other things that you're doing with the Ombudsman's office and others to try to maintain this. So uh, good luck with this. Uh, Thank you so much for this, and uh, we'll be in touch again soon to pick up this conversation. I appreciate uh, speaking with you, Bill. Thanks so much, Bruce. Right. Bye-bye. Bruce Kruger, of course, a retired uh, detective inspector with the OPP. Uh, it's, it's simply a matter of, of offering the services that are available and, and, and making sure that everybody gets the best possible coverage and treatment for dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder and, uh, and the problems that can come with this. And on and on it goes. And it's a sad, sad story. But thankfully, there are champions like Bruce Kruger and others that are fighting that fight. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.